That is a beautiful song, and not just because we get the chance to hear Jamie rock the cello. It's a rare treat. The words are so beautiful, too, uh, commemorating the beautiful, the humble manner in which Jesus came to us into the world, but also from there, the humble manner in which he continued to live as a, offering a gift of love for us. And we've been looking at this life that Jesus lived uh, in our series that we're walking through the Gospel of Mark over the course of several months. We're about a third of the way through now. Today we find ourselves in chapter 6. If you want to begin to turn there in your Bibles to follow along, uh, it's page 711 in most of the pew Bibles that we provide. We've been looking at this life of Jesus, and today we'll look at three stories, one at a time. And I was trying to think what kind of ties them all together. They're, some of them, a little bit bizarre. And there's a line in that song we just sang, the fullness of God despised and rejected. That is, is Jesus. And we've been looking each week at this gospel and asking two big questions every week. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And one of the things that's true about who was Jesus and the life that he lived when he came first time is that he was often despised and rejected. And in turn, what does it mean to follow him? To enter in to a degree and share in that life with him. So today we're calling this message uh, Rejected One or Ones. That's Jesus and by nature, those who walk with him. Real, real uplifting, I know. If you came here for a cozy, sentimental Christmas message, I'm sorry. This is just where we landed in, in the text for this week. And I looked at it, and I thought, well, what in the world does this passage have to do with Christmas? Well, it turns out, everything, everything. This is the time we really think about, reflect on, consider how Jesus came to us, in what manner he came to us. Now, if I were God, come to earth I don't think I would leave myself open to rejection from fickle, messed up human beings who I made in the first place. I wouldn't do that, but thankfully, I am not God, and neither are you, but Jesus is. And the manner in which he came, he did leave himself open to rejection. He came in the most humble way of all, born as a baby, the most vulnerable of people, but from there continued to live a vulnerable Life. He did not strong-arm people into believing in him. He didn't bully people into getting in line with him. He didn't force or coerce people to trust and to follow him. He came compelling people to believe in him, to follow him, to find life in him. But he was open to people saying no, rejecting him. We've seen that a fair amount in Mark so far, and we're going to see it again today. And we're going to begin, the beginning of chapter 6, our first story we have today with Jesus in his hometown, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So Jesus comes to his hometown, the place he grew up, and he does there what he's been doing everywhere, all around different towns, shows up in the synagogue as a rabbi teaching about God's law. And the way he's been doing it everywhere else, we've seen Jesus teach with tremendous spiritual authority, unlike anything anyone's seen before. He's speaking with the authority of God himself. And his teaching has been accompanied by miracles, healing people, casting out demons, that sort of thing. And there's a a sense here that he's performing miracles in this place as well, and speaking with great authority. We were told that people who heard him were amazed, and we've seen that before. People have been amazed at his teaching, and that's led people other places to a sort of awe and wonder, and they ask questions like, who, who is this? Who is this man doing these things? And they ask with a sense of, of reverence and curiosity, it seems. But this amazement is a little different in his hometown. His home people ask questions as well. In fact, they ask a series of questions. Where did he get this wisdom, this power? Wait, isn't this the guy we know, the carpenter, we know his relatives? They ask a lot of questions, and they all kind of boil down to to one basic question, which is, who does this guy think he is? We know him. We know his place. Who does he think he is? And they took offense at him. It's a different kind of response. They've got an idea. See, Jesus has been to this synagogue before, probably many times, grew up there as a boy. He probably had his bar mitzvah there. They'd seen him come of age. And and so they've got a picture of Jesus and who he is and who he's supposed to be and what is his place in society and what is his place in their lives. And right now, he's not fitting that. And so they they can't handle it. They can't get over their picture of what he should be, what they want him to be. This, this, they're comfortable with him playing a certain role, having a certain place, uh, but not anything more than that. And so, therefore, they take offense at him. And man, how often can we do that as well? Be limited to a, a certain idea of what we want Jesus to be like. Certain things we'd like him to do, but not anything else. Having a certain space in our life that he takes up, but not anything more than that happens all the time. Christmas, we, we love the idea of the baby Jesus, the holy infant, tender and mild. He's comfortable, he's safe, he's approachable there in the manger. But then, you know, he grows up and he speaks with authority into our lives. He tells us how to live, he tells us what's right, and he calls for our allegiance. And sometimes when that happens, we take offense at him. Or perhaps we want him to be different than how he came. Maybe we want him to be kind of someone who strong arms people into being a certain way and behaving and believing a certain way. And we, we wish he would just ride into town on a horse like a strong man and just get everybody in line, make every, everybody right. And, but he comes with this humility and, and gentleness. Maybe that causes us to take offense at him. But a lot of times we've got a picture of who Jesus is and what he, what he ought to be like and what we want him to be like. And, and that can limit what he can do in our lives. He may want to be more than that. He may want to be more than that. They take offense at him, and then we're told that Jesus, in turn, was amazed at them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. We've seen people amazed at Jesus, but to amaze him, that must take some doing. 
He's amazed at them. That's a different word in the Greek in verse 6 describing Jesus' amazement um, than verse 2, the people's amazement. The people's amazement is the word ekpleso, which kind of means like, wow, unbelievable, sort of wonder and awe. For Jesus, it's the word thaumatso, which means kind of perplexed and kind of like, really? Unbelievable. Jesus is amazed in that kind of way, like, ah, really? That little faith, a tinge of sadness to it, too, because the lack of faith in these people, these people that he cares deeply about, leads to a lack of miracles in the end. Because they don't believe him, we're told Jesus couldn't do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I think that's kind of funny. It's sort of like, you know, a bad day in Florida beats a good day anywhere else. Like a bad day for Jesus, pretty good. Several sick people getting healed. But there's a sense that, oh, he could have done so much more if there had been more faith in that community. There could have been so much more that he would have loved to do, loved to give to them and pour out on them, but he doesn't do it. Not that he can't, not that he lacks the power, but here Jesus is not going to violate his own principles where miracles are in relation to faith. He's really after our hearts. He really wants faith, not just to put on a show for people and to do miracles whether they like it or not, that kind of thing. He's not that kind of traveling healer. He, he is looking for faith in people, and all the miracles we've seen so far, there's faith involved. He's responding to people stepping out in faith, believing in him and trusting in him, and he's leading people to faith, but where there's no faith, he's just not going to do it. In a way, Jesus is kind of showing a form of judgment to this town, actually, as they reject him, but it's not judgment of like calling down fire or destroying them or anything like that. But what he's doing here is actually giving the people what they want. They don't want him to be powerful. They don't want him to have spiritual authority. They don't want him to perform these miracles, and so he doesn't. In some ways, that is a, a, a really tough form of judgment, actually, to, to actually give us over to what we want and to what we insist on. And God will do that. You know, if we're hell-bent on not having him in our lives, he won't force it. If we want to keep his power at at an arm's distance, we're determined to do that, he will give us what we want. And it's a sad thing because they miss out on so much that he could have done, so much power, so much miraculous work, transformation that could have been theirs, but instead they want him to just stay in his place, to be quiet, to be small, to be limited, and so he is, and he moves on from there. So we'll see Jesus move on from his town and go to other towns as our story continues. And as he does this, he's actually going to begin to send his followers out to do the same thing. So there are the 12 he's called to them, 12 disciples are going to begin to go in Jesus' name to talk about him and proclaim the good news about Jesus to other towns as well. So we'll pick up here our second story in chapter 6, starting verse 6. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons 
and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So we've seen some of how Jesus came into the world. Now we're seeing how he sent others into the world. These are the first people he sends to represent him and to make him known to others. And that is part of what it means to follow Jesus, to be sent by him and to represent him and to make him known to others, to share who he is with others. And he does this here. And he sends the 12 like, like him, like he was sent. First, we see that they were sent with great power and authority. They were actually sent with Jesus' authority. So he gave them authority over impure spirits. So they've been given great spiritual power and authority that they can bring to the places that they go. And, and it happened. We're told that they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. There, there's great power that Jesus has given them to take with them to each place where they go. That sounds cool. Also, we see that they've been sent to do what Jesus does. So they, they are performing these same kind of miraculous signs that Jesus performed, and they're bringing his message. Jesus came to preach, the kingdom of God is here, repent, believe the good news. And so the 12 are doing that. They're calling people to repent, which means simply to, to turn to God, away from whatever else, to turn to God, to, to change their ways and to kind of get right with God. They've been given that same message as well. That's part of what it means to follow, to be his followers, to have that same message. Repent. Not, I mean, you have to wave signs and yell at people, repent, repent, you're so wicked, but actually to invite people to turn from whatever it may be that's destructive and, and will not lead to life, but to turn to God, to invite people to turn, to know him, to turn to him, to get right with God. That's a message entrusted to them. So they're sent with Jesus' authority and sent to do the things that he does. Also important, though, is they are sent with Jesus' vulnerability. The manner in which he sends them is vulnerable every bit as, as much as, as he is, as he goes into a place. The instructions are to be pretty bare bones, not take any extra stuff with you. No money, in fact. They're not to go into town and, and set up shop and overwhelm people and put on a show. They're to go into town humbly and be dependent, actually, on the hospitality of the people that they're being sent to. Not to overpower them, but to, but to come into relationship with them. To bring really nothing but the message itself. No bells and whistles, no, no displays of wealth, and, and no strong-arm kind of power moves, but just bring the message itself which people can accept or reject. And Jesus seems to assume that some people are going to reject them. He makes a, an instruction there. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, this is what you're to do. It kind of assumes that that's going to happen, that not every place they go is going to welcome them or listen to them. So they're sent vulnerably to do what they're doing. And they're coming to announce a kingdom, I mean, the greatest kingdom of all, and they're sent with great power and authority, but, but they bring it with tremendous humility. That's how they're sent. It's very different than the great kingdom of, of the age, the Roman Empire, which would have gone town to town in this very same region to announce their rule and announce their power, and they would have done it in a very different way with chariots and horses and weapons and trumpets and all sorts of displays of wealth and power and might and announce their kingdom as if to say, get with this rule or else. It's pretty irresistible and, and hard to reject that kind of arrival, but that is not how people are to bring the kingdom of God and to announce the kingdom of God. They reflect Jesus in how they do it, but to do it with nothing but the message and to open themselves up to the possibility 
of rejection. Unfortunately, in Christian history, especially in the West, there's been a lot of confusion about this, and and bringing the gospel, bringing Jesus to people has often been done in a more Roman sort of way than what we see here with with power at the point of the sword or the spear or with with all sorts of um, worldly domination or coercion. And, you know, whenever that happens, whenever the gospel is brought to people with violence or with force, where it's mandated to a society or something like that, or where we rely more on the power of a worldly leader than on the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is always compromised in some way, and the life of the people is robbed of vitality. We're there just to depend on the power of God to show up, and it may mean rejection for them, it may mean acceptance for them, they don't really know, but it's a vulnerable thing to represent Jesus in the world. It was meant to be because Jesus came in that kind of manner himself, vulnerable, and humble. So one way to avoid rejection uh, and avoid vulnerability is to just come with power, to come to strong-arm people into believing uh, and changing and turning. Another way, though, is just not to go at all, to not tell anybody about Jesus, to not mention it, to not mention his name, to not ever offer to pray for somebody or or make an invitation to them to know God. Uh, That's another way to avoid rejection. But anytime we actually want somebody to encounter God, anytime we want to invite them into life with God, it's going to come with the possibility of rejection. It did for these people here, it did for Jesus, and it could be simple things. I mean, just in this coming week, we have these Christmas Eve services, I think are really pretty beautiful and powerful ways for people to encounter God. So my wife and I are planning to invite a whole host of people, kind of our son's network of friends, all their families, We'll invite them, and some may say yes, we hope. Some may say no, likely. We don't really know. We do know if they come, they'll probably encounter God in some way. And the only way we'll find out is to make the invitation, one that can be accepted or rejected. We're not going to, you know, drag them to church. We're going to invite them. These are the kinds of invitations we can make. In the last couple of weeks, there's been, it's been finals time in our nearby campuses A lot of our students are gone on on break now, but in the finals week at Clark, WPI, and other places, some of the students who who attend here made offers to people. They would stand outside the library with coffee, hot cocoa, that sort of thing, offer to to bless people, but then also offer to pray pray for people in the midst of their stress, anxiety. You know, hey, could we pray for you? Could we invite God into this with you? And a lot of people said, no, I'm good kind of maybe rather just take all this anxiety on myself. Um, but it's, it's an offer that we make, and it was a humble way to engage people and to give them the opportunity to encounter the power of Jesus. That's how he sent them out, to, to bring the message, to offer, to bring the power of God to bear on people, but, but they didn't force it on them, and many of them were probably turned down. This was a, a taste of life to come for these 12, Maybe they experienced rejection here. Maybe some of them went to a town and and were run out of town, told to get lost. But even if they weren't, eventually, these these early followers of Jesus would experience profound rejection as they tried to tell people about him, as they tried to announce the kingdom of God all throughout the surrounding region. Most of these guys would end up giving their lives, actually, for making that invitation to people and experience deep rejection, and experience the end of their lives would look, for many of them, like the end of the life of the man we're going to look at next, John the Baptist. And we're going to now get back to our, 
our scripture here and pick up in verse 14. And this is a story, this is really quite disturbing and, um, yeah, strange. So read along with me, and we'll start to unpack it. In verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body, laid it into the tomb. Whew. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's a bizarre tale and kind of gruesome, really. I looked at it and thought, what is this even doing in here? This is an account of Jesus' life. And we have this long detour to look at Herod and John. Where it is in the story is actually kind of a flashback. So we've been walking with Jesus and his disciples up until now, and then next week we'll pick back up where we left off with the disciples returning from their adventure. But this is kind of a flashback. So as Jesus' name is becoming known, people are starting to wonder and speculate, well, who is this guy? There's something about him. And different theories are going around. One theory was that perhaps John the Baptist was raised from the dead. Seems a little far-fetched, but I don't know. He'd been doing miracles they'd never seen before, so maybe, maybe that's what it is. And King Herod buys into that theory. He thinks, oh yeah, this must be John. Probably because Herod is haunted by what he did and continuing to carry around a guilty conscience to where he thinks, uh-oh, perhaps John has come back. We've got a king and a prophet here in this story the king is Herod. Now, there are several Herods in the New Testament. It can be a little confusing. There was first the Herod around the time when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great. He was called that because of uh, his great power. He had connections to the Roman emperor, a, a Jewish king, uh, known for his extravagant building projects. Uh, he, he built 
fabulous things, including actually refurbishing the temple in Jerusalem to become a really spectacular space. Now, he didn't do that because of any great desire to honor God or worship God. He was really more kind of pandering to his base, so to speak, of influential Jewish people. But Herod was not a God-fearing king. He was ruthless, brutal. You see that in the account of Jesus' birth when he ruthlessly put children to death. It was very much in keeping with what we know of Herod historically, of someone who put a lot of people to death on a whim, including several close family members and wives of his uh, whenever he felt like it. So this Herod here in Mark 6 is his son. He's the son of Herod the Great. He had several sons, all Herods, kind of like the old boxer George Foreman. He named all his kids George. There's all these Herods now, and this one has a third of his dad's kingdom. He, there were three sons who each got a third of Herod the Great's kingdom. So this Herod, he was born into all this power and privilege and the family name. He had, he had kind of daddy's kingdom at his back, but he only had a third of the kingdom, so he was a little bit less than and probably maybe felt like he had something to prove. It's always the most insecure guys who seem to feel the most need to show off and to brag, maybe, and, and that's what he does later on in this story this banquet. So that's King Herod. Then the prophet here is John. John the Baptist was a true prophet in the biblical tradition of prophets who spoke the word of God to people. All throughout the Old Testament, there were corrupt kings who were really ruthless, brutal, and, and godless people, but they liked to surround themselves with prophets, so to speak, who would to kind of tell them encouraging things, tell them whatever it is they wanted to hear. Oh, God is with you and that sort of thing. But the true prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, and the like, that would always tell the truth to these kings, even at great cost to themselves. And they would stand on God's word, and they were consistent. And John is like that. We met him back in the very beginning of, of Mark's gospel. Where we're told that he preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, again, meaning to turn from the life you've had, turn towards God. He called people to do that everywhere he went for their forgiveness so they could turn and find forgiveness in God. He did that to common ordinary people on the countryside, and then it seems when he had an audience with the great king, he, his message was the same. He was an equal opportunity prophet who was consistent and calling Herod to repent, to turn from what he was doing. In this case, Herod had taken the wife of his brother first. He, he ditched his first wife for no really good reason other than he didn't like her anymore, and that in itself was unlawful, actually. But then, while his brother Philip was still alive, Philip's wife and Herod got married to each other. And so John said, really, that's, that's not right. Turn, repent, really, like, turn from that. And again, it's a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's not just wagging an angry finger at the guy, but actually turn from that. That's leading to death. Turn to God, find life, forgiveness. But John's message does not go over so well to Herod and Herodias. Herodias, in fact, is just ticked, and she wants to kill him right away. But John doesn't quite do that. He, he imprisons him, or Herod, sorry. He imprisons John. He can't quite bring himself to kill him yet, because he sort of likes him, he, he recognizes there's actually probably some truth in what this guy is saying. It maybe resonates at some level, so he keeps him around and he listens to him every now and then. He's kind of a fan of John. But then this moment comes, this banquet, which is apparently something ancient kings would do pretty often. There's a, 
almost the exact same scene in Esther chapter 5 in the Old Testament where King Xerxes puts on an extravagant banquet for all the powerful, influential people just to kind of flaunt and show off his power and his wealth and his glory. And Herod's kind of trying to do that here, even though, honestly, none of this is his stuff. He's actually a puppet king for Rome, but, he, but he's trying. He's trying to show off and, and flaunt. And this sort of vow that you would make uh, it was a way of doing that, of kind of flaunting your wealth and, and what you could do. So King Xerxes and Esther was also taken by a woman and, and just kind of blurted out this, I'll give you anything you want, even up to half my kingdom. It's the exact same words here that Herod is saying. He's taken by the dancing of his stepdaughter slash niece. And he's probably drunk. That was a big part of these, these affairs as well. And he just blurts this thing out. Anything you want, I'll give it to you because I can do that. I'm a very rich man, very powerful man. Now, Proverbs 20, 25 says, it is a trap to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider one's vows. Whoops, he hadn't considered that someone might ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's the request. And so he is greatly distressed, we're told. Because again, he kind of knows John's actually a holy guy, a righteous guy. I kind of like this guy, but, but I got to save face, right? In front of all these people, this is my time to shine on the stage and show off my, my power and my wealth and what I can do. And so he'd been a fan of John, but ultimately now we're going to find out where does his loyalty ultimately lie? with the truth, with rightness, with the kingdom of God that John was bringing, or with his own kingdom, with his own self, with his own reputation, and with saving face in front of all these powerful people, his loyalty lies with that. And he immediately has John beheaded, and his life comes to a pretty gruesome end. So again, why is this even in here? Weren't we talking about Jesus and his disciples? Well, we do see, though, uh, a pretty graphic picture of what it looks like to identify with Jesus and to identify with truth, to identify with the kingdom of God in this world. It is to open yourself up to rejection. And John experienced a profound rejection as he spoke truth to powerful people. And John's loyalty was to the kingdom of God first and foremost above anything else. Herod's was not. And this was written to people, Mark's audience were Christians under the Roman Empire at a time, probably in the 60s AD, when persecution was really becoming a thing at the hands of the, the emperor and the most powerful leaders in Rome were imprisoning people for their loyalty to Jesus and putting them to death for their loyalty to Jesus. And they may have you know, been prone to wonder, oh, has something gone terribly wrong here? What's the, our, is, our, is this just a, a tragic story? And John's story almost looks that way. It does look at the end of this tale that Herod is the one with all the power and John looks like a tragic figure. Herod's the one on his throne executing orders to put people to death. John looks like a tragic figure. His head is on a platter. And people may have wondered if that, if that was true of them under Roman domination. Oh, is this, do they just have all the power and are we just a bunch of sad cases? Well, no, not at all. They were identified with the truest and most enduring kingdom of all, the kingdom of God. The tragic figure in this story is not John, it's Herod. Neither of these things that it looks like at the end are ultimately true. 
Herod does not have all the power. His kingdom is a small little footnote in history, whereas the kingdom of Jesus has continued to grow and expand and will go on forevermore. And John was identified with that kingdom. He's no tragic figure. When the disciples went out town to town and they were rejected or run out of town in a particular case, they're not the tragic figures for experiencing rejection. The tragic figures are the ones who ran them out of town, who missed out on the good news about Jesus and missed out on the, the healing, the miracles, and life in the kingdom of God. And in his hometown, the tragedy is, is the people who missed out on the miracles that Jesus would have gladly done if they just had some faith, if they hadn't confined him to this little narrow picture and box they wanted to put him in. But Jesus himself is no tragic figure. Make no mistake. Again, in Isaiah, it said that he was despised and rejected by mankind. But he was no tragic figure. In Isaiah chapter 53, I'd encourage you to, to read through the whole thing sometime this week. It, it encapsulates the life of Jesus that Isaiah foresaw 700 years prior. And it starts, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. Yes, that is true. That is the manner in which Jesus came into this world, in which that could happen and did happen. But that's not the end of the story. For one, his being rejected had a real purpose. It was not a, a, just a tragic tale, but actually his rejection was in taking on our own sin, our own things that separate us from God. Jesus was rejected in order that we might be accepted by God. Later on in that chapter 53, it says, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Thank God that I'm not God come to earth, but that Jesus came the way he came, laying down his life as a sacrifice for us so that we could be accepted by God and no life with God. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. There is great purpose in his being rejected, purpose born out of love for us so that we could know God. But then Isaiah 53 goes on from there too, this despised, rejected man who gave his life and who was beaten and brutally killed for our sins. His life doesn't actually end there. It says, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. This sacrificial laying down of his life that Jesus did was not actually the end of his story. This beheading at the end of his life that John experienced was not the end of his story, not the end of his life either. He was aligned with the king, the real king, Jesus. Herod's kingdom is done, and so will any other kingdom on this earth that we might ever want to align ourselves with. It'll be over. And the question will always be, what kingdom are we fundamentally loyal to? Where does our allegiance, our loyalty ultimately lie? Is it to any kingdom here? Is it to any prestige or power here? To saving face for any sort of important people here? Or are we fully aligned and identifying with the kingdom of God? Which means walking in this world like Jesus did, vulnerable, humble, with great power, with great authority because we're walking with him, but humbly and vulnerably as well. Not strong-arming people, not bullying people, but offering them Jesus, offering them life, and being willing to suffer, perhaps, and be rejected along with Jesus, but knowing that's not the end of the story. Where is our loyalty ultimately lie? Some people miss out on Jesus. Herod missed out on Jesus. He missed out on the truth that could have turned him to find life and forgiveness because another kingdom came first in his life. 
The people in Jesus' hometown missed out on life, missed out on Jesus, missed out on his power because they had a, a little picture of who he is and who he should be, who they wanted him to be. They missed out too. May, God, may our picture of Jesus be all of what he wants it to be, all of who he really is. And may our loyalty ultimately lie with him, with his kingdom and all of what that means, all of what that entails. That's what he came to bring. He came in to bring it in a way we might not have thought of ourselves, but it's a beautiful way. And he invites us to take part in his kingdom. He will share the spoils with the strong. And the strong is John the Baptist and the 12 who go out, and anyone who dares to identify with Jesus in the world, we get to share in the glorious inheritance and all the riches of his kingdom when it comes in full. And that is what we're waiting for in Advent, even as we celebrate how he came the first time. So let me pray. Let's take root for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you did come to us, humble as a baby, rejected and despised so that we could be accepted by Almighty God. I pray for us here today, and as we ponder you and consider you in this season, that we really would have our view of you aligned with who you really are, a humble king, a humble and vulnerable king. Lord, help us to see the beauty, the truth, and the glory in that. And help us to not wish you were someone else and not keep you in the manger, keep you as a baby, but, but be open to your words spoken to us with authority. Any ways that we have a limited, a broken, a, a small picture of who you are, I pray that you would shatter those, break through those, and bring all of what you want, all of your power and glory into our lives. In any place where we might be like Herod, where our, our loyalties may be divided in this world, I pray, Lord, that you give us the grace to choose you, to choose life, to choose truth, and to choose life in your kingdom that will reign forever and ever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.